0: Great. So I'm going to uh, share a Bible reading um, and then hand back to Luke, who's going to pray for John, who's going to come and share the word with us this morning. Um, I'm going to share two Bible readings. And the first, if you want to follow along with me, is in 2 Peter, chapter one, verses 16 to 21. And then I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians after that. But the words are also going to appear on the screen if you want to follow along with us in the building or at home. So starting at verse 16, it says this, "'For we did not follow cleverly devised stories "'when we told you about the coming "'of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, "'but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. "'He received honour and glory from God the Father "'when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, "'saying, "'This is my Son, whom I love. "'With him I am well pleased.'" We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it. As to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the uh, the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets through humans spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then our second reading comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 9 and 10. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, and in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I'll hand
1: back to Luke.
2: John, I'm going to invite you up. And John, it's so good to have you Uh, bring us the word today. But before you do, I just want to ask, are you up for something slightly different this morning?
1: I hesitate because I'd like to know what the
2: different bit is. Well, as as I was thinking of praying, as I said earlier, I felt God say to be a participant this morning rather than a spectator. So here's what I'm going to ask people to do who are watching either at home, and if you're in the room, you can do this by logging onto your phone as well. As John preaches this morning if there is anything which comes up from John's preach that you want clarification about, if you've got any questions that arise because of what John says this morning, I thought maybe after we've worshiped a little bit and responded in song, we could potentially do a little bit of question and answer if there are questions which come up from the congregation and from those at home. So I wanna encourage you this morning to be participating and questioning What John is sharing. The title of our sermon series is If You Could Ask God One Question. So we're asking some big questions of life and faith and this is your opportunity this morning to participate in the sermon and not just spectate. So John, I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to pray that what you share with us, God's going to just use to melt our hearts and draw us closer to him. Let's pray together this morning, church. Father God, we thank you that we get this opportunity to calm and to study your word. But Lord, we don't just want to hear your word preached to us this morning. We want to hear the Holy Spirit Mm. speaking to us. And Lord, I pray not just for John this morning, who I know has put a lot of effort into preparing what uh, he's going to share with us this morning. But I want to pray for all of us who are watching this and participating in this this morning. Give us, Lord God, the spirit of the Bereans this morning who, when they heard the word preach, went and they questioned it for themselves and they searched the scriptures for themselves. As we hear John speak to us this morning, may that be our attitude. And Lord, when questions arise because of what we hear, may we share them and may we explore them together this morning too. Bless John, we pray, giving that Holy Spirit fire in his belly to preach to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen, Lord, amen. Well, folks, it's actually brilliant to be preaching a sermon again and not looking at myself on a screen. And I've realized perhaps after all these years, what other folk have endured sitting hearing me preaching because they see me. Um, But uh, it's great to be able to share with you. Now, you might find those two readings that we had this morning a bit disjointed. Uh, But the reason for that is that the subject I'm going to talk on this morning, there's not one verse of scripture I can go to or one passage because it's, it's a very interesting question. And the question is, isn't faith just a psychological crutch for the weak? Isn't faith just a psychological crutch for the weak? And it's a very common accusation that's uh, leveled against uh, religion in, partic- in, in general, but uh, Christianity in particular. You know, And it's based on this assumption that, God is merely a psychological projection. I'm using the uh, phrase that was given uh, by a guy called uh, Freud, who was a psychologist. He said, religion, faith, is just a psychological projection. In other words, it exists only in our minds and, and, and the minds of believers. And it's been created by a, a deep-seated uh, need for a, a benevolent father figure. And Freud himself had a father who was brutal, who beat him and beat his mother. And so I can understand why he didn't like a concept of a father. But he says that the f- people who believe in, in some supernatural figure, they do so because they want a benevolent person, as it were, uh, in their life somehow, and, and in the end, everything's going to be all right. And, and that helps them to go through the confusing mishmash of, of, of life as, as, as people know it. Um, and this is what Freud actually said. Sorry, I don't want to be a psychological lecturer, but this is what Freud said. I'm, uh, <laughs> I studied in the 60s, and so I suffered having to learn about Freud, all right? But he says, this is what he says about uh, religion or faith. He says, there are illusions, fulfillments of the oldest, strongest, and most urgent wishes of mankind, the terrifying impression of helplessness in children aroused by a need for protection through love which was provided by a father. Thus the benevolent rule of divine providence allays our fears of the dangers of life. In other words, he's saying that, that any, any notion of the supernatural, any notion of, of a deity, of God, is just a projection. It's, it's all in the mind, nothing else. So how do we respond to this? And many, who, or most perhaps, who are listening in this morning will be Christians. I wonder how you would respond to this. We ask ourselves, can Christianity simply be explained away uh, uh, so easily? Is belief in God just a projection of our mind? Could it not equally be that Freud's denial of God's existence could be a psychological projection of himself because he just doesn't like the idea of a God figure who has authority over him? That he had a passion to be free and live his own life, which is some of the things that came out of the the whole philosophy or psychology of Freudianism. There's a lovely lady called Amy or Ewing who works for the Zacharias Trust. She's one of their trustees. And she says this, dismissing God as a projection while claiming neutrality in our own psyche is disingenuous at best. And it cannot be an adequate basis for denying or rejecting God. In effect, those who make such a statement as this are saying that they are the only ones who are beyond being affected by psychological factors when reasoning something Through. I must admit, I once believed that. I once believed that. I'll come back to it in a moment. Another quote, forgive me if it sounds a bit academic, it's from the professor of law at New York University, Thomas Nagel, and uh, he's a prominent advocate of atheism. But at least he's honest, for this is what he writes. He says, I want atheism to be true. And I'm uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people and friends that I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want to be a universe like that. At least he's honest. Therefore, we might ask all so-called atheists, is the all but universal inclination in the hearts of men or mankind of one sort or another to believe in God, is is that not sufficient evidence that there is something beyond us, that somehow there's a God consciousness in us. Whatever we feel, whatever we believe. And if you turn to the Bible, which I do as a Christian, we find that it says there that we are made in the image of God. That's in Genesis. But it also says in the book of Ecclesiastes, and that God has put eternity, this sense of the eternal, into the heart of man. According to the Bible, God consciousness is one of the things that makes man unique. It might be distorted by all manner of factors, including fear and ignorance, but it's not simply a psychological projection of personal preference. It's more akin to the newborn baby searching out its mother's breast. An innate thirst, an innate desire, a need in life and so let's be brutally honest with ourselves if I might again quote somebody else Daniel Rogers he wrote recently in a UCCF that's the University's Christian Fellowship be uh, thinking paper he said this if Christians if Christians were just looking for a God who would simply function as a crutch to make life easy to bear why come up with a God who is infinitely holy and just. A God who finds many of our desires and thoughts to be immoral. Shouldn't that have been the last sort of God we would make up? Wouldn't we want a God who just nods at our behaviors and desires, in other words, says there, there, you can do what you like? And I would take that further and I would ask this, would we want a God who, like the Christian God, says, if you try hard enough and do your best in life, it's still not good enough for me. Or even goes a bit further and says, that even if you lived your life without in any way offending anybody else, I still would not accept you because you're not holy as I made you to be. Wouldn't we, if we were psychologically projecting what we want and what we need in life, wouldn't we project us a God for ourselves who says, you try hard and it'll be okay because I'm very loving and very gracious? But my friends, what does this christian god or this christian so-called christian's psychological projection if that's what it is what does it come up with it comes up with a god who says as i said earlier your best is not good enough for me it comes up with a god that says as in romans 3 and verse 10 nobody's righteous nobody Or again, as it says in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what about this one in the book of James? For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in just one point will be counted as guilty of all of it. And the consequence? Judgment, hell, and condemnation. My friends, would you or I project such a Savior, such a God, who is said to epitomize God's love and promise his life in all its fullness to those who follow him, who taught on hell more than anything else when he lived on this earth. Jesus I'm talking about. Who said that this life in fullness, this joy, this peace which I've come to give, comes with some scary caveats, like being prepared to risk family and friends I lost my family by coming to faith as a young teenager and was thrown out doesn't sound a pleasant thing does it the same jesus he spoke of us having to be prepared for our friends becoming our enemies of our being ostracized being despised and even killed Such events are recorded in the Bible and have been documented in history and incur right up to today, people dying for their faith. You ever thought that of the first apostles, as the first people that were sent out to, to speak the gospel, that James, Thomas, Simon, Peter, Mark, Matthew, Bartholomew, Andrew, Philip, and Paul were all martyred? So was Stephen and a whole host of others. So much so that when it came to the turn of the second century, a Christian leader turned around and said that the blood of the martyrs is the very seed of the church. Who would come up with that? And that painful reality, my friend, continued right through to this century, where it continues today in such places as Iran and China and North Korea and parts of Africa. I actually know those who have been martyred for their faith. And it didn't seem to bother them before that that's what might happen to them. We have to ask ourselves, are we mad? Seriously, are we mad? Are Christians absolutely loopy for believing in such a God? Surely only the dimmest masochist, would come up with such a psychological projection as that. So how can it be so? How can it be that, for instance, Thomas Nagel, as I quoted earlier, is so uneased by the fact that some of his most intelligent and well-informed friends and people are religious people? Well, this is where the faith and the crutch for the weak bit of that opening statement comes in. Both of which I believe are true. He who asserts that faith is a psychological crutch for the weak sees faith as believing in fairy stories, irrational, made-up things, a hoping-against-hope type of superstition an emotional comfort blanket. What is more, he sees weakness as the despicable flaw of the inadequate man who, unlike him, needs a crutch to live through life. But believing the Bible and having faith in Jesus is not based on emotion. It's not based on wishful feelings or thinking. It's not based on some existential leap into the dark. C.S. Lewis once famously uh, said, I didn't come to Christianity to make me happy. I knew a bottle of port would do that any day. So why have and still do millions of other seeking people come to faith in Jesus and are prepared to risk everything for it? Are they all mad? Am I mad? I would say it's because they came to see that Jesus truly is Lord. He truly is God come in the flesh. And that their real need is not happiness or healing or to be delivered from, uh, or from, from the problems of this life. Their deepest need is to be delivered from an eternal lost life. And they come to see that true life, true fullness of life was to be found in no other person, no other way except Jesus and what he has done. That to have him, and if necessary, nothing else is better than having the whole world and all that it provides. Some of the richest people on earth have died miserable. They had everything this life could offer. Yet they died died miserable because they still didn't achieve what they thought they needed. My friends, how do you come to this conclusion? Or how do I come to this conclusion? That to have Jesus, to follow Jesus, is more important than family, more important than friends, more important than career, more important than being comfortable, more important than living at ease. They come to that conclusion by reading this, by coming to the Bible. You see, the Bible is like no other book that's ever been written, particularly religious books. There's not a single religious book in the world that comes anywhere near to this. And I would face that challenge with anybody because this book is not based on the opinions of men. It's not based on philosophy of men. That's why we had the reading to start with from Peter when he says, We didn't follow cleverly devised myths and stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, they walked with him, they heard him, they saw him. They saw a living man die, they saw a living man, a dead man live. We ourselves, he said, heard his voice. But, says Peter, we also have the prophetic message, the Old Testament. We have that as something completely reliable, and we do well, he says, to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Above all, this is the bit here, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy, the Old Testament, that's what he's talking about, never had its origins in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so F.F. F. Bruce, their great teacher and theologian of the 20th century, he said, there is, I imagine, no body of literature in the world that has been exposed to the stringent analytical study that the Gospels have sustained for the past 200 years. That's not something to be regretted. It is something to be accepted and received with satisfaction. For scholars today who treat the Gospel as credible." For scholars today treat the gospel as credible historical documents. They do so in the light of analytical study, not closing their minds to it. Do you realize, my friends, my Christian friends, the Bible was written over a period of some 1,500 years by 14 different authors, written in several different languages. People, many of them, never knew of each other. And yet it stands together as one book. It's been critically analyzed and it's been searched and it's been found to be theologically, archaeologically, geographically, historically, prophetically, and even scientifically true and holding. Holding together as one book with one theme, the story of how God, perfect in holiness and justice, through Jesus' his son, sought to reconcile sinful man to himself. Those who are, are, are people of Hope Baptist Church, you've heard me use the story before of Nebi, Nebi and Nebi Presa Shala, a Muslim couple who came to England as asylum seekers, And Nebi struggled with with, uh, faith, struggled with Islam, struggled with Christianity, struggled with it all. And he came along and he came to faith. Absolutely amazing. He came to faith faith, and begged me for a Bible in his own language, in the Kosovan language. I managed to get him one and I gave him to him one Sunday. And I was away for the week. I said, I'll chat to you next week and see what you think of it. And I came back the next Sunday, and I talked to him. I said, Nebby, what do you think of the Bible then? He said, Oh, great. It's good. I said, I said Where are you, Which book are you reading? And he looked at me perplexed. He said, What do you mean, which book? It's one book, isn't it? I said, Well, yeah, but which part are you reading? Where have you read? He said, I've read it. I said, What, all of it? He said, Yeah, I, I started at the beginning and I got to the end. He wasn't allowed to work, so he just read every day read the whole bible and he turned around to me and he said he said the book is great is it it's all about jesus from beginning to end this is a guy who's only been a christian a matter of weeks and he saw it and that's what the bible is It's a record, a record of of Jesus, about God bringing into the world his son, who was going to redeem mankind, who was going to save mankind, but not, not by being some great master and great leader who goes out in the front of armies that he's whipped up to follow him. No, he came to die in our place. To bear our punishment. And he rose from the dead again to say, done it. You can follow me. And if you follow me, you will live for eternity. Well, that's the, the Bible paper. So where does the crutch and the weakness come in? Christians aren't weak, my friends. That's why I read Paul where Jesus said to Paul, who was struggling, my grace is made perfect in your weakness, Paul. And Paul's response was, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. There's not one of us who can live the christian life in his own strength every christian recognizes that or should by faith yes we are born again but that does not mean we can't stumble that does not mean we can't fear that doesn't mean we can't get things wrong oh i know that too all too well i don't believe though there is a man alive who has greater faith or perhaps even greater holy spirit power than paul did so if Jesus can say to Paul that his power would be displayed, demonstrated through Paul's weaknesses, how much more for me? But notice the dynamic here. Paul knows that he does not of himself have the power. He is essentially weak, but he trusts Jesus enough to say, I know I will have that power when I need it. Let me give you another quote from a friend of mine from South Africa, P.J. Smythe. I don't know if folk know if anyone have heard of him, but it doesn't matter, but for years now he's been living with cancer. And this is what he wrote just recently, a week ago: "I think about dying now more than before. but I haven't got morbid. I actually feel freer." My fear of death is close to zero. My passion to live is high. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain, quoting Paul. He said, it's a win-win. And then he said, consider Daniel 3, and that's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were going to be thrown into the furnace and were told, renounce your God and bow down to Bel, the God of the, of the Babylonians. And we we know that they they didn't. But he goes on, he says, he says, God will rescue me. God, I'm able to say rather with 100% confidence, God will rescue me. And also say with 100% confidence, but if he doesn't, I still won't bow down to your gods. Both are faith. Faith is faith in what I believe God will do. And the second is faith in who I believe God is. In other words, both and. I wonder, my friends, you're able to say that. My last quote is one that Carol told me to shut up now, and you've heard it before, but of our friend Rose, who literally, just a day before she died, when I went to visit her, she died of cancer. And she was on her bed, and there was a nurse there next side to her, dealing with her drip. And as I walked in, she smiled and looked at me, and she said, at last I'm going to beat you at something. I'm going to see Jesus before you do. The look on the nurse's face was a picture, I assure you. But my friend, that's the crutch we welcome. Not something we hide behind or use as an excuse, but a God-given aid to enable us to trust him so that though humanly weak in in him, we're made strong. I conclude this morning by quoting Jesus himself. Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? That's Christianity. I might not gain the world, but I won't lose my soul because I have life in Jesus. What about you, my friend? Where do you stand? Faith is not a projection of the mind. Neither is it a crutch simply for the weak. Faith is belief in the truth. Why do I believe in Jesus? Not because he makes me happy. He does, but that's beside the point not because he makes me happy, but because who he is and what he is and what he has done is true.